1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to
2: Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from New York City on this, the 13th day of November 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, as always, I do like to remind you I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. You can call our office during normal work hours, 718-457-1426. I would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter. Chen does an extremely good job of picking biotech stocks. It's a volatile market. It's a difficult market, but it's one that can be extremely rewarding, and Chen provides guidance for his subscribers uh, you need to go to chenpix.com chenpix.com to sign up for what is Chen buying what is Chen selling I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show sending along your comments criticisms praises or whatever uh, comments you have uh, send them along to questions taylor at gmail.com questions the number four taylor at gmail.com I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable this week's sponsors are Novo Resources Sandstorm Gold Triumph Gold Uh, Gold Mining, Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Are Gold Share Investors Fools? Dan Oliver, Ryan Groderski are my scheduled guests today. Uh, It's been seven years now since gold shares have performed well. Gold and gold shares rose as a result of massive quantitative easing. Then came a five-year downturn in the price of gold, and after gold hit an all-time high of over 1,900 in 2011. But why continue to invest in gold shares when they are not working and when virtually every other sector has been making money hand over fist in the equity markets in one of the longest bull markets in stock history? How much longer can the bull market in equities go on, especially in a rising interest rate environment? Well, answers to those questions I do want to pursue with Dan Oliver during the second half of today's show. I would also like to ask Michael uh, some of those same questions, but unfortunately, he is not able to be with us today. That's Michael Oliver. Almost every week he is with us, but he wasn't able to be today. I will be passing along very helpful information from Michael, however, in just a moment or two, in his absence. In just a couple of minutes after our first commercial break, I will be talking with Ryan Godursky. He's a friend, a neighbor of mine here in New York City, uh, here in Queens. Ryan is a political analyst who appears frequently on Fox News and Fox Business, uh, interne- uh, national radio, uh, on the national radio programs at various times. I do want to get his take on the election results and some of the illegal mischief being pulled by Democrats who clearly are ignoring the rule of law in favor of anarchy and political control. Now, unfortunately, as I said, Michael is not available today. However, I can tell you, that if you are a subscriber to Michael's Precious Metals Service, you would have a sense of what gold numbers to look for as an alert to the next breakout to the upside for the yellow metal. Michael isn't on with us today. Um, he, I do hope he'll be back next week. But let me tell you that a number of a number to look for uh, that he's telling his subscribers is something along the lines of twelve twenty-seven. If we were to get through twelve twenty-seven, he thinks it will be clear sailing to the upside and that number would drop by another $2 or so next week. Gold is certainly facing some heavy headwinds for the moment, but sooner or later that will change, and when gold finally has the wind at its back, the gold shares are going to perform exceptionally well from their current very depressed levels. I have an idea that we could come early. I have an idea that, that, in fact, a change in the weather for gold could come early in the new year. After tax loss selling is over, Uh, certainly that will help the gold shares. Uh, Gold mining companies are down hard this year, so they do provide a great tax shelter or a hedge against taxes for people that have made money in the equity markets overall. Now, I want to put in a plug for Michael Oliver's precious metals service, which is available for $299 a year. I think this is a very important service because of his accuracy in triggering his subscribers in and out of the gold markets at key times. I'm talking about longer-term moves, of course. Michael provided a video discussion of his key discussion of his key decisions regarding the time out of gold uh, in uh, 2013 uh, at $1,700, which is about $180 before uh, most chart analysts technicians would have gotten you out. Then, in terms of getting back into gold, Michael made the call in February 2016 at $1,140. That entry point. Uh, seems to me similar to many article to many chartists. I, I guess many uh, chart chartists or price chartists would have picked more or less the same uh, price to re-enter as Michael did. However, one of the things that I appreciate about Michael's work is that he hasn't whipsawed me in and out of the gold market in that time. You could look at the price chart and you would have gotten very nervous as most chart price analysts have, uh, and they've triggered people in and out of these markets. Uh, out of the gold market at various times well i'd rather not be whipsawed i'm not a trader so i like to know the long-term trends i want to be on the right side of the market and i can take the small moves uh painful as they are at times but as a gold share investor i want to make sure that i'm still on the long side when we're in a long secular bull market now you can michael actually is uh He's made this video available, and you can actually view it if you go to jaytaylormedia.com. When you arrive there, simply click on the video tab, and Michael's chart and illustration is uh, the second feature on the video page. Please go there to understand, uh, as well as Michael's methodology, how he uses his momentum charts to trigger uh, in and out of the markets. And What I've noticed, not just in gold, but in all the other markets that I've followed, is that Michael uh, has been able, his momentum charts usually get you in at a more opportune time or out at a more opportune time than the chartists do. And that's, um, I think, uh, demonstrated certainly by his exit out of the gold markets before uh, gold came down uh, uh, to the point where most chart uh, technicians uh, exited the market. Well, uh, we do have to go to break now, uh, but don't go away because I'm going to have Ryan Godursky with me. Uh, to talk about the midterm results and uh, related topics so don't go away we'll be right back with ryan gregerski
3: think you've seen everything there is to see in online television
0: let us surprise
3: you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7
4: Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia.
2: Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold
1: royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as S-A-N-D.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business
4: Network.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, uh, for the second time, I believe, Ryan Gerderski. He's a friend of mine who lives real close to me here in Queens, um, w- uh, Middle Village, Queens, actually. And so uh, thanks for joining me again, Ryan. Thank you for having me on again. It's really good to have you. I should mention to our listeners that, uh, well, you, you're you a native uh, Queens uh, Queens fellow. You you grew up here. I moved in here from the Buckeye State. but. Uh, We are neighbors, and uh, it's a very nice little area that we have here. Um, You are uh, frequently on Fox and Fox Business, Fox News, and uh, a lot of different radio shows across the country. You've been talking, I suppose, a lot about the midterm elections, I suppose, and that's what we'd like to ask you about today. Regarding the House of Representatives, uh, what is the Democrat majority now at last count, and uh, do you think that's pretty stable now, or are we likely to see – uh, some more gains by the Democrats before it's all over.
3: Well, they picked up about thirty-seven House seats. There's another. There's a question of two more. California is very slow in counting their results. Um, so the questions right now exist about Utah four, which is likely to go Democrat, which is Mia Love's seat. She was the only Black female Republican in the House conference. Um, but a horrible campaigner. Um, Utah four, um, California ten, California thirty-nine, California forty-five. Uh, thirty-nine and forty-five are Orange County, um, uh, and then maybe a suburb of Georgia, which is um, which is uh, Rod Woodall seat uh, in, in north of Atlanta, and and also uh, North Carolina nine, which is the suburbs of Charlotte. That's likely to go Republican. So. Democrats will have picked up between 37 and 40 seats after it's all said and done, which is a quite substantial gain.
2: It really is. A, a lot more than when we first heard the day after. something it was supposed to be something like 26, I, I thought, but uh, which would yeah, have been... Okay.
3: Well, a lot well, there's a lot of early voters now in our council later. I mean, states have expanded how early voting works. So, um, so yeah, but Republicans... The good thing is Republicans gained at least one, if not two, Senate seats in, in, in the U.S. Senate. Um, so they kept their they didn't have any losses in in the upper chamber and they've gained in the upper chamber which is which is good um right now there's a recount going on in florida um for the florida senate seat uh rick scott's up by twelve thousand votes it seems very unlikely they're going to be able to flip that the only chance they have is if they have more shenanigans in broward county but um, but it's good if we have 53 U.S. senators, it's good for the Republicans because that means that there cannot be a one, a rogue one or two or even three Republicans, you know, Romney or Collins or Murkowski or, uh, you, you know, uh, any of them or Ben Sasse cannot sit there and stage coups on their own the same way they could when it was 51-49 and you had, you know, John McCain and Jeff Flake running around. So uh, the Senate is much more conservative. The Republican class in the Senate is much more conservative. So that's at least good.
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned early voting and, and how they're doing that now. Do you think that opens the door for some shenanigans? Or, or what's going on, if you'd comment a little bit on, on what's going on in those two counties down in Florida? I guess the same counties that were problematic uh, back in the presidential election, uh, the Bush-Gore election, right?
3: Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It is different. So Broward County is is the most democratic county in Florida, or one of the most democratic counties in Florida. It's a major, major county outside uh, north of Miami, and um, basically the. I mean, it has had a long, long, long series of corruption scandals in the county. The current uh, woman who's in charge of it, she was a Jeb Bush appointee because Jeb Bush had to physical. Jeb Bush had to send. Um. Uh, send, send, um Uh, state police to physically remove the last uh, person who counted the votes in Broward County Um, in 2016. This woman was, uh, was, was found guilty of destroying ballots to favor Debbie Watson Schultz in the democratic primary. There have been people who have filled out affidavits, um, that have stated that that they've saw people filling out ballots, workers filling out ballots. Illegal aliens have voted in this election. They've caught illegal aliens voting in this election. Um, the Gillum and, uh, and and the Democrats have argued that those votes should count. Um, boxes are constantly being found of new votes everywhere. Um, so that she's mixed in provisional ballots with regular ballots, which are illegal. Uh, it's, it's, it's it's total pandemonium. She either is completely inept or. She is openly um, trying to steal this election, and, and either way, Rick Scott has not done enough, and neither has Pam Bondi, the Attorney General, or the or the RNC, or the Republican Senatorial Committee. None of those have actually um, really worked hard enough to sit there and stop this, this this flagrant abuse and stealing this election.
2: What's your theory on why? I don't know.
3: I I I I do not for the life of me I do not know I, and and I'm screaming from the rooftops uh, you know they need Rick Scott's sentencing. Rick Scott is the governor it's not like he has no power well, um, right he could he could absolutely uh, remove her from office and he just hasn't and I guess so that he seems like. Uh, you know he's not wielding abuse or 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 something like that, which you know, great. but you're going to give the Democrats a, a victory that they stole, um, so they need to so, sit there and do something very very quickly.
2: So let me understand, Ryan. If uh, if the Republicans hang on to that senatorial seat down in Florida, they will have how many? Fifty three or fifty two? Fifty
3: three.
2: Fifty three. Well, 53, they'll
3: have, okay. we'll they'll have fifty two, and then there is a runoff in Mississippi. Because Mississippi, like Georgia, if you don't get 50 percent of the vote in the first round, you go to a second round of voting. But the Republican is likely to carry Mississippi, so it'll be 53.
2: Okay. All right. Well, now, uh, yeah. with the uh, strong majority that the Democrats have in the House, uh, do, you, do you see Nancy Pelosi becoming the speaker?
3: Yeah, I imagine so. I don't, I don't know if there is going to I – I can't I can't imagine there's going to be a sizable coup. um, um Uh, You know, I don't don't know. I I, I can't imagine there'll be a sizable coup and that that they have organized. You know, Nancy Pelosi really did invest very heavily in making sure the Democrats would win. Um, And, you know, even if there are 30 or 40 Democrats who do not vote for her, uh, there's a private meeting that's held um, before the House vote on the floor. And Mm -hmm. in the private meeting, that's when they lash it out. But I mean, at the end of the day, what are they going to do? Forty members are going to sit there and vote for somebody else besides Nancy Pelosi and give Kevin McCarthy the speakership. No, if speakers aren't elected by popular vote. A party, people. I mean, you could elect anybody as speaker of the House. They don't need. They don't need to be a congressman. You could elect me as speaker of the House. You could elect you. You could elect any, anybody as speaker of the House. So, what are they going to do? Vote for somebody else and then give the speakership to Kevin McCarthy because mm. they'll help He'll have a united Republican. Uh, effort or semi-united Republican effort. I mean, no. seems kind of a little strange to me. Um, no. I don't think that they're necessarily going to do that, though. So, uh, so, so. I mean, we'll see. I mean, we'll wait we'll and see. But I, I just don't imagine that that's actually going to happen.
2: Well, uh, in the, uh, I happened to catch Nancy Pelosi's speech after the election on a flight I was taking to the West Coast day after the election. And she was uh, making nice, like she was going to really try to work with uh, President Trump. What are the chances of that?
3: Well, there are areas that Trump and her actually have a lot of agreement. You know, Trump, is, Trump very much wants to deal with something with infrastructure, so does Nancy Pelosi. Um, they both want to bring down the price of prescription drugs. Um, uh, they both would like to uh, do something about higher education and student debt, and um, So, I mean, there's a real chance. I think so much of the problem of the first two years of the Trump presidency, and I've been writing quite a bit about this, is that Trump really outsourced so much of his legislative agenda to Paul Ryan that Uh what we got was Paul Ryan's agenda, not Trump's agenda. And that's why we worked on, you know, stupid things like uh, the tax cuts for a year and a half and the Obamacare repeal, which was horrible, Um, rather than focusing on what people voted for Donald Trump for. They voted for him for immigration, for trade, for for less wars, for better infrastructure, for putting America first, for reducing the the gap between the rich and the poor, and to invest in the working poor. And I think that between Trump and Pelosi, they do share a few pieces of an agenda that they could could work for together. And I don't think that they necessarily have to be adversarial roles. I'll say one other thing is that Alexandra Pelosi, um, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, I mean, one time shared a bus ride, and and Alexander Pelosi told me that Nancy much preferred working with President Bush than President Obama. So oh. I mean, it's not like she's never worked with a Republican before, and maybe something can get done. Who knows?
2: Well, we could we can try to be optimistic. I guess it would be nice, but boy, the the rancor has been so severe recently in recent times that it's just been very discouraging in many ways. I, I think you mentioned to me that. Uh, before we went on the show, that something like uh, 47% of the people don't pay taxes? Is it 40% of the voters <laughs> well, or it 40% no of sense. the population?
3: It's, it's like 45% don't pay taxes. Yeah, because they, they make so little income, or 40% make so little income, that they actually get money back from the government. It's the um, Earn income tax credit. But that's why it made no sense for Republicans to focus their entire first year agenda on reducing personal income tax. I mean, you know, I believe that they needed to reduce corporate income tax because I do think, you know, we need to be more competitive. But why are we giving tax breaks to people and to companies who are then going off to give, uh, you know, sponsorship roles to um, uh, uh, the guy, the f- football player who kneels for the, for the, for the flag? You know, we're, yeah. you're giving billion-dollar uh, tax cuts to companies who are then using it to promote socialism. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it just, to me, that's bonkers. I yeah. think that's why the established Republicans truly don't get, um, they don't understand, oh, you know, modern culture and, 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 and how the legislative agenda should have been used to promote um, a more cohesive culture. Um, but their time in office is basically done now. Paul Ryan's gone. Most of his allies are gone. Everyone who basically supported the Dreamer bill is basically gone. Um so we'll see if the Republicans can patch together some kind of coalition going into 2020 that they can let let them retake the House and at least keep their 53 47 majority in the Senate. 53
2: 47, and there could be another uh, Supreme Court justice coming up. I suppose it looks uh, looks like that's a very real Inford possibility. will not be on the
3: bench all this week. She's still recovering. I mean, listen. I'm not wishing any harm on anybody, but she's 85 years old with two broken ribs. I took care of my grandfather and my grandmother in their 80s. I know about elderly people and how something like a fall could hurt them. Um, She's a woman of a certain age. There's another Supreme Court justice who's 80 years old. So, yeah, those, I mean, that would be, and and also there's tons of vacancies on the Ninth Circuit Court as well. It's not just Uh the Supreme Court, it's the circuit courts as well.
2: Well, you mentioned several things uh, that that uh, Donald Trump was elected for uh, that uh, they haven't paid too much attention to. I mean, one of the uh, one of the reasons, frankly, that I voted for him had to do with uh, his uh, his desire to pull back or to engage in in fewer wars. Uh, it seems to me, Ryan, as though that might be one area where it doesn't matter who the president is. There's powers that be that actually want to keep um, keep military spending alive and well. Uh, president Eisenhower, uh, I, first president I can remember because I'm so much older than you, I can remember <laughs> Ike. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ike was, uh, was really very concerned about the military-industrial complex, and I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but it seems to me as much as he wanted to, um, well, I guess maybe he hasn't been as aggressive as some, some people would like him to be, but the only area that he seemed yeah. to get any real real uh, praise this. for was... I'll say, uh, uh-huh. I'll say this.
3: I mean, I'm a peace hawk, I like to call myself. Um, but, um, what? I, yes, there are a million interests that are saying keep America at war. I will give Trump some criticism that he hasn't brought our troops home from Afghanistan, that he hasn't brought all the rest of our troops home from Iraq. He hasn't um, done those things, and I wish he had had. However... Um, he did end the funding of Al Qaeda in Syria. He mm-hmm. um, has been sending uh, people to negotiate to stop a war in North Korea, um, and he did. He has been pushing over and over and over again to end the war in Afghanistan. The problem is, is with Trump, as with any world leader, is that he. I mean, this is according to the Bob Woodward book, where Trump was like, "Okay, I'm pulling our troops out of Afghanistan," and they said, "Well, you can expect another 9/11 to happen." And when that's the implication, and that's what the people are telling him over and over again, is that it, your choice is either um, to end the war in Afghanistan or get another 9-11, you know, it makes you sit there and, and question and, and wonder. Um, there was a story today in the Bloomberg, I think it was, about how he's trying to negotiate with the Taliban and to end the war in Afghanistan, how he's trying to, um, how they just announced they're cutting fund, uh, oil, uh, um, fueling uh, Saudi Arabian planes in Yemen, and then there's the ongoing attempt to make peace in north korea I, I i it is not happening as quickly as I would like, and he has and also he has not started any new wars um, right. so it's That's not true. happening as quickly as I would like um I would like him to pull out of NATO completely, but instead he's trying to get the Europeans to at least push in their two percent um I would like him to i mean I would like him to do all those things they mm-hmm. he hasn't been as aggressive as I would like. That being said, he has been further in the right direction than in the wrong mm-hmm. direction.
2: Mm-hmm. I would agree with you on that. You know, you, you, uh, that he's threatened, uh, or he's he's told by his advisors, I guess, that if he pulls out of Afghanistan, we'll have, we might have another nine eleven. And I have to think about, uh, Senator Ken- or President Kennedy actually rejected a false flag code named Operation Northwoods. It was planned by the jo- Joint Chiefs of Staff to get the American support behind the overthrow of Cuba, um, it makes you wonder. I don't know. Uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, I know it's, no, it's, uh, it's dangerous to go off on, uh, on theories, but uh, you do have to wonder about some of these things. Ryan, um, anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion today?
3: If, they, if anyone would like to read my, more of my stuff, you can visit me on my Facebook page, Ryan James
2: Gerdusky, G-I-R-D-U-S-K-Y,
3: or on Twitter, at Ryan Gerdusky
2: absolutely and my very is
3: good. com. So
2: <laughs> all right, and you and you also write for the Washington Examiner, I guess, right?
3: Washington Examiner, the week magazine. I have a very big piece coming out in December for um for the American Conservative Magazine about the rise of right-wing nationalist populism worldwide and what started it and how it was created. Um, so they can check out that when it comes out.
2: So Excellent. All right, very good. Well, I, I have to start paying more attention to what you're doing because I think you have some really interesting stuff and <laughs> nice. uh, and you're and, and you're a neighbor of mine, so even more so. Yes, Thanks exactly. so much, uh, Ryan, for being with us and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime soon. Thank you. All right. Fine. All right, folks, we do have to go to break now. Don't go away though. Dan Oliver is going to be with us and we're going to pursue this idea of whether or not it's sort of ridiculous to own gold shares when you can make so much money in the big market. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dan Oliver.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon, with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp. and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC Markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining, Inc., ticker symbol GOLD on the TSX and GLDLF on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Maren Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold Mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dan Oliver. Uh, Dan is the founder and managing director of Mermican Capital. Uh, In addition to quite a few years of investing experience, he brings with him a very sound academic background with uh, a law degree and a BA degree in philosophy uh, uh, from uh, Columbia, and also, um, I believe, a degree from Vanderbilt. I'm not sure I have that exactly right, Dan, but thank you for joining me again today. Close enough. Pretty close. You're, close you're, enough. Uh, I mean,
0: you're, they, they, they tell you you go to school to learn that you don't have to go to school. So I learned that several times. Oh, and finally, okay. finally, the lesson stuck.
2: Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, you know, I, I've titled today's show Are Gold Share Investors Fools." I know you invest in gold, gold mining shares. I do too, and it's been a very painful year for me. Uh, and so, uh, in order to answer that question, I'd like to discuss your recent article. Heads or tails you lose. You wrote it October 11th, uh, just a month ago or so. Uh, in, in that recent article that you sent to your clients, you compared the stock market to martingale risk. Could you define martingale risk?
0: Yeah, sure. So, so most people are familiar with the kinds of risks when you flip a coin, it has your tails 50-50. But there's but, uh, even outcome. But there's something called a martingale risk where you win most of the time. Maybe you win the bet ninety nine percent, ninety ninety five percent of the time, but the five percent you lose, you you get wiped out. So in other words, the the expected outcome is the same, mm-hmm. but but the distribution of the possibilities is very different. And the example, which again is a historical example from an eighteenth century French mathematician, was what what he would do is he he would bet an even bet like a coin toss. So that's that's called a franc. If he if he won it, great, he won a franc. If he lost the bet, what he would do is he would double the bet. So he bet two francs. If he won uh-huh. that. Right? He, he recovers his lost francs, and he has a profit. If he loses, he's down three francs. So he doubles it again to four francs, right? And, and so on and so forth. So if you think of each series of coin tosses as one discrete bet, the expected outcome is one. He always winds up with one, right? At, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um, but but the, and so he, he almost always wins. The, the problem is, what, what if he just gets it wrong that the coin toss wrong again and again and again to the extent where his forcing is wiped out? He's out of money, right? He can't make the next doubling because he just ran out of money. Then he's totally wiped out. So, that, so that's a great real world uh, example of, of how Martindale risk works. And basically, the, the way Wall Street does it is, is is pretty much the same way. You, you, you have the Federal Reserve that... That keeps the banks from blowing up. But that's their function, right? Is to provide mm-hmm. reserves to the banks and keep credit growing, and then you have the the super smart guys in Wall Street. Now they hire all these MIT scientists to to figure out uh, you know where, where prices are. We're going to go with with all this credit, and, and credit tends to grow very very slowly over long periods of time. And so, it, like like the Martingale bet, you tend to win most of the time you make little gains most of the time and so everyone thinks you're a genius and then what happens is you get these moments like 2008 or 1929 when all those gains get wiped off the table and and the conceit of wall street is oh my god you know no one could have seen this was, was going to happen and and so the people who don't understand the math and what's what's happening buy that story and think oh yeah it was just a really unfortunate you know a perfect storm kind of thing it's random and so I'll, I'll give the guy a chance again and, and, and there are two two actual people is I wrote my paper who actually uh, a, a very uh, uh, you know, did this very self-consciously. And that was Victor Niederhofer who uh, who, who wrote, he, he, quoted, he said, I, I figure I've traded about 2 million contracts with an average profit of $70 per contract. And, <laughs> and he, he yielded 35% compounded returns for years. I mean, he, the guy was a genius, right? Who wouldn't have your money with him? Well, you know, he, he traded his contracts. Well, right after he wrote that quotation, uh, he made a bad bet and got totally wiped out. And, and he went to investors said, oh gee it was just unlucky uh, and they gave money again and he made great great returns until 2007 came along and he got wiped out again uh, uh, and, uh, and so and so Wall Street people are naturally incentivized to do this and 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 there's a deeper reason for it and that is that the way asset allocators look at investment strategies is they look at it as, you, as you, I'm sure you know in terms of alpha and beta and, and these are mathematical. Mm-hmm constructions, which really, I think, have no application in the markets. Markets are catering systems that 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 uh, reflect value in individual choices. But anyway, w- when you're in a managed market, uh, they, they do work for temporary periods of time. And w- Beta is the measure of volatility. So if you were in a portfolio, and all it does is uh, do what the S&P 500 does, only twice the, the volatility, well, that's easy to reproduce. Anyone can go buy the S&P 500 more, levered mm-hmm. up with, with, with margin debt and get the same results. So sure. that's called beta. It's very cheap. You can't charge a lot of money to manage money for doing that. Sure. Alpha is when you get steady uncorrelated gains, right? People pay a lot for that. They say, hey, you're a genius. You know, you, you're not worried about volatility. I'm not going to lose my money. You're just going to compound it slowly over time. Well, the best way to do that, the best way to get slow uncorrelated gains is to sell insurance. And that's what AIG was doing. You say, mm-hmm. like, you pay me a little bit of money every month and I'll pay out uh, if something really bad happens. But the assumption was that nothing bad is ever going to happen, right? It's proverbial selling asteroid insurance. Uh, I I'll, I'll collect premiums from you every month against the asteroid. When the asteroid actually hits the Earth, I, I don't pay off because there's nothing left to pay. I, I just, you know, we're all dead. So, so, so it's the ultimate alpha strategy. And the asset allocators, who again I think don't quite understand what's really happening, look for managers that have really, really good alpha. And 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 those managers tend to be people who are taking very, very subtle risks that maybe aren't very apparent. And they, they allocate them huge amounts of money, like John Meriwether, long-term capital mm-hmm. management. That was mm-hmm. the poster child. I mm-hmm. mean he, he hired Myron Scholes, who was the uh the guy who, who developed the Black Scholes model, right? And and he and Myron Scholes described the firm's strategy as a giant vacuum cleaner sucking up nickels from all around the world. And and, and this became made fun of second second nickels in front of a steamroller, right? I mean yes. it, it's just these these very all these very very small gains you're going for, like like the Martin del Energy, right? Yeah, and then almost happened. What happened was, is I'm sure you remember, is that uh, that they got some interest rate differentials wrong. The the Russian ruble collapsed, and the, 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 the failure was so large that the Federal Reserve had to organize a bailout. This is before 2008, before 2000. I think it was right 97, so or 98. Uh, and and so again, you know, you, you can make so much money as a Wall Street if you, if you have the right credentials, and the right background, and you roll out these strategies. And again, no one quite understands them. I'm not even sure the people who do them. I, I don't think Myron Scholes was a, or John Maynard was was a you know was a, a crook. I mean, I think he actually mm-hmm. believed that it worked, but it mm-hmm. doesn't work because that's not the way markets function. These aren't free markets we're dealing with. These are manipulated markets by central banks that keep them elevated until the bank gets spooked, and then it, and then it it, it You know, uh, raises rates and the thing crashes down. It happened in 21, and it happened in 29. It happened in 2000. It happened in 2007, right? Bernanke raised rates to to uh, constrain the bubble, and it's happening again today. So, I mean, if you have to understand the cycle to understand when these strategies work and when they don't work, and my view is that at the moment uh, they've worked really, really well. Volatility has been incredibly low since the Fed got involved big time in the marks in 2009. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we've seen just last few months that vol- that that squelching of volatility has basically ended.
2: Yeah. Well, it's ended in part because uh, the Fed has put its foot on the brakes just a little bit. At least it's taken its foot off the accelerator, perhaps you can say QE um, is, is gone uh, and it's uh, it's tightening QT now, I guess I call it. So uh, let me understand this for sure, Dan. Alpha, then what we're looking for is. Above market returns, but with the same with but with no risk or with very little risk, yeah, right? no, is that no
0: correlation so? is, is, is the theory. So, no. if, I, if I'm if I'm some trader and I'm super gifted and and I can uh, day in and day out, you know, buy X and sell short Y against it, right? And use, mm-hmm. like spreadsheets, and I'm mm-hmm. just so good, I can do it all day long. I don't care if the market's going up or down. I, I just I'm really good at at identifying. Uh, uh, relational value and I can squeeze it out if I can if I can actually do that consistently forever I mean that would be very valuable right because you yeah. can say here, here's a bunch of capital I get some return and I'm not worried if the market crashes or not because you're not long the market you're not short the market you're just doing these differentials and it's great and so again all these hedge fund people pretend to do that um, mm-hmm. maybe some of them you know pull off I've never heard of anyone actually does it over the long term but that that that's the strategy but again most of them when they say they're doing that, like Victor Niederhoff or John Meriwether, they're not really. They think they are, but what they're mm-hmm. really doing is they're just playing Martindale risk. And when again, when the, when the system blows up, they throw their hands up and they say, oh, "Look, no one could have seen this happening. All the smartest guys, the economy, no one saw it coming. So it's not mm-hmm. our fault. So give us another chance." And then they get another chance it's, it's, and they go again incredible.
2: and and, and find incredible. a new way. Uh, find a new way. So, <laughs> so what you're saying is it, it eventually blows up because the system is rigged. It 's not a free well, market
0: right well exactly right they would, they would never work in the first place in a free market it 's just that markets are not free they haven't been free for a hundred years and so again, when the Fed is pumping money into the banks and the banks are pumping up the credit you you get big credit bubbles and the whole time of credit is expanding, you know these strategies work really really well and and you know just a segue into I think what 's probably more interesting for your listeners if if you recall. Michael Lewis's book, uh, the, the, the Big Short, one of the mm-hmm. hedge fund managers he writes about, was buying this insurance, right? He was buying it. But that's negative alpha. He was losing a little bit of money every month as he paid the premium on this yes. and thing. And then they didn't yes. pay off, and he lost the premium. The premium was very small, but it was negative alpha. And, of course, his investors are furious because you're supposed to produce positive alpha, not negative alpha, as a manager. And so they, and they tried to sue him the whole thing. He had, he had lockup uh, provisions. So they couldn't pull their money out, and they tried to sue him the whole thing. Well, I mean, he, he was… He was you know, savvy enough to be there at the right time and the market did implode and he had huge payoffs in those bets that he was taking. Um, and and I, I analogized what he was doing to gold mining stocks because the, the way gold mining stocks work over the long term, over the cycle, is that they're really a spread trade. The input costs are base commodities, right? Uh, steel, oil, uh, labor that competes with other commodities like copper and, and 10 sexier things, right? All All that... All all those all those rubber, all, all those things are going to mine and the output's gold. So the the real margin is determined ultimately, not in the short term but in the long term, by the spread between industrial commodities and gold. And when the banking system is busy creating a bubble what it does is it, it, it lowers interest rates and that makes long-term projects look really really valuable because the longer term your project is the more it influence its value is by interest rates and so you run out and you start building uh buildings i look at my window in new york city it's like shanghai i mean there, there, yes. there are cranes everywhere because all these things were uh they spread up yesterday they were all probably planned five six years ago it takes that long to plan and build a building so when rates were zero and at zero rates, everything looks profitable. So they run out. And this puts huge upper pressure on commodity prices. Of course, gold does not produce income. You don't build buildings with gold or anything else. So it's relatively unaffected. And so the whole time the bubble's happening, your, your gold money margins are being squished. And, and so it's like you're paying that premium, right? Because your economics, your gold money are just no good. And then when the bubble pops and rates go crazy high, I mean, I'm talking private, not, not government, treasury bill rates, but, um, but the rates of uh, the private market. Uh, uh, real estate, those sorts of things. Uh, all, all those projects get devalued. And I mean, For example, in China, when it finally pops, they'll discover they don't need a new building for 30 years because they've built so many of them. They're all empty or rows or anything else that they've all overbuilt. So then all of a sudden, the demand for commodities disappears, and the value of commodities, industrial commodities collapses. And again, gold is relatively immune from these forces, and so therefore you get a huge increase in your gold mining margins. And the more marginal your mine is, your mining asset, your gold mining asset is, the more sensitive it is to this uh, uh, to this dynamic. So again, it's no surprise that when the Fed managed to reignite the bubble after 2008, that gold mining didn't do well because by definition in a bubble, gold underperforms everything else. Uh, and now that we're rolling over, uh, I expect that the gold ratio is going to shoot higher very dramatically when, when the music finally stops. We're, we're still sort of teetering over the edge, but at some point we'll, we'll fall over the edge. And that's when the uh, gold mining sector were really get a boost and the, the junior mining sector, especially so because they have more operational leverage to the store than, than um, everyone else. But it, it goes back to thinking about and the way I think about it, again, is in this alpha beta terms, right? You're, mm-hmm. it, it's yeah. a tough strategy to do personally and professionally because you, you're like the Michael Lewis character. You're really making negative alpha in a world where asset allocators you know, don't want that. And they can't explain to their clients, and they just, they just can't do it. But, but that's why so few people are in the trade, and, and that's also the opportunity.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess, um, you know, the question is, are we who invest in gold mining shares fools? And it sure looks like it for a long time, doesn't it? I mean, it just as a, just as the other side of the trade looks like the, you know, you, you can't lose, right? They said it about a housing market in the, in the uh, 19, you know, 2007 up to 2008, you couldn't lose buying a house, uh, buying houses and, and leveraging up on the houses as, as well. uh, but you can't lose by buying the S and P 500. We know that's true now, Dan, we've had 10 years of it. Uh, right. and, and, um, so yes. And so our, my subscribers are saying much of what Mike Barry's, uh, Mike Burry's, um, uh, his investors were saying, come on, Mike, uh, you're losing money for me every month. Uh, come on, uh, wake up, uh, you know, make some money for me. Right. So it's, it's really hard. Uh, you're investing. I mean, you invest in gold shares, Dan. Um, what what sort of shares do you look for in this kind of a market? I mean, if you have cash, at some point you can buy these things for next to nothing. Uh, boy, I mean, I wish I would have been able to see this coming, as well as uh, some people have. But uh, and I have you know, built some cash in my portfolio. But how do you play this now? And, and when do you know when the turn is going to come? And that's the big thing to me. How do you know? It could be another 10 years yet.
0: You know, it, it, it's, well, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, if you just look at the stock prices, you can't really know. And, and, and the reason is because stock prices tend to be fractals and that they're infinitely self so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 you know some, some of the charts of the gold stocks now in, in sort of micro Timeframe uh, time frame now look exactly they did in 2014-15 you have these declines that just don't, don't just aren't consistent on a percentage basis there's not they're losing ten percent every month the 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 loss percentage is actually increasing so you get these exponential yeah. falls of these abysses and and th- that burns itself out you can't keep doing that forever and <laughs> what it's doing I think is shaking at the weekends and anyone on you know, margin of course is getting blown out of the water and then, sure. as you say if you have to sell it as a tax loss you just you, you've lost your nerve you really really get, get you know get you lose on these you know w- with the way I try to mitigate that is um, you know I, I, I as you know I think gold is going very 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 much higher and so what I want are stocks that are operation levered to that story, but what I don't want are stocks that are financial levered to that story because what I don't want is for gold to take a big dip lower when the music really stops in the financial markets, and, and have that be the moment that the stock I own has to refinance its debt, right? Uh-huh. Or, or the stock goes to to almost zero and they got to issue a billion shares to keep the lights on, right? Cause, right. Cause then you don't recover. Then the asset goes to someone else. You get diluted so much that you don't really recover when gold right. prices get back. Uh-huh. So what you really want are, are stocks that are not going to do that. That that you know if you're in a developer or explorer that have the discipline to stop activities and just hoard mm-hmm. their cash and mm-hmm. you know they dilute you five percent to keep the lights on that's fine but but the, the, they're not going to do some drill program mm-hmm. when the market doesn't care about the results right and that they dilute the whole stock to do it and and that's not really something you can discover in an annual report it's something i think you have to know management and trust right. them not mm-hmm. to do that and, and a good signal of course is how mu- how many shares does management own if they if they own no shares i think they're inclined to keep keep drilling, keep burning shares, and keep giving themselves options, and they don't really care. I mean, not all of them, but but they certainly tend to do that. If the management themselves owns 10%, 15 20% of the stock outright, uh, they're a lot less inclined to do that. So there, there's that motivation. Again, there's just knowing the the discipline and maturity and character of the, of the investors you're dealing with. The same you know, thing for the for the producers. I mean, well, you know, most producers have debt at some level, although actually you know, a lot of them have, have, have paid back uh, the debt Going into 2015, you know, they all had too much too much debt that they accumulated in the big in the big surge after mm-hmm. QE. And and most of that has been has been you know, pared down a lot. Uh but I really want to see if if I have a company producing company with debt is when is the debt due? Um, because companies almost never get into trouble because they can't make their interest payments. They get in trouble because they have to roll the debt, you know, expires, right. they get like a new debt at just the wrong moment. And and that's when they really get in trouble. So as long as for me, as long as the debt is do, I don't know, three, four, five years from now, uh, I, I don't worry about it as much because again, I'm not, I mean, the, the market might worry about it, but I don't worry about it because I'm pretty convinced that within that time frame, the gold price would come back and the debt would be rolled without a problem
2: or even pay back. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that takes a lot of work for people, individual investors. Of course, people can buy into a fund uh, that's managed by people like yourself or other fund managers. Uh, the easier way out, it seems to most people, is just simply to buy an ETF like GDX. Yeah. Any thoughts about that?
0: Well, I I do. I mean, I, I, you know, ETFs work really well in other markets, and I, I don't know. Tell me, we have to <laughs> explain it, but in, in most markets, the bigger the company is, the, the better term credit terms it gets from a bank, the lower its cost of capital is, and so the more competitive it is, and so the bigger the company is the bigger it gets. And ETFs are all cap-weighted, or mostly. So the ETFs, that the indices have the best strategy, which is why active managers in most sectors can't possibly compete with passive investing, so-called. And, and gold is very, very different because... It is not your cost of capital that defines how how, how, uh, how profitable you are. It's, it's your grade and where you are and you know your metallurgy yeah. and all, all those other things. And, and some mm-hmm. junior can come across an asset that's just vastly superior to anything that Barrick or Newmont has. I and mean, it's a mm-hmm. bit of a luck of the draw in that sense. So you don't really have that same massive amounts of industry concentration naturally as you do in, in the other spaces. And the problem that the ETFs have in the gold space is they're, they're cap-weighted. And so mm-hmm. uh, they, they gravitate towards biggest companies, which are not the best managed. You know, all these big companies want to grow, and growth is your enemy in the gold space because they they get stuck in these huge white elephants with enormous CapEx expenses that always overrun, and then they get in trouble that way all their debt. And the other problem is that the industry is very, very small compared to other industries. And so what what happens, I know firsthand from talking to people who run more liquid strategies and you know, mutual funds, that kind of thing, is that uh, if something happens and gold spikes on a Monday and all the hedge fund people... Uh, deploy capital into these ETFs and these, these liquid strategies, and now they have to deploy the cash because that's what they do. So they run out and they buy all their shares at the ask, you know, and push push the prices up mm-hmm. because of the liquidity. And then, you know, three days later, gold tanks and everyone sells their ETF shares, and now the ETF has to go and sell these stocks at the bid and push their price down. So you get you get enormous drag, um, uh, it, it, but by the volatility in the ETFs, and and then again, I think that they wind up. Uh, for the most part, investing in the wrong companies because they do it really on the basis of size and liquidity. That's all they can think about. It how liquid is this thing? How big is it? And as opposed to how good is it?
2: Well, you uh, you certainly make the case in your article for uh, putting a portion of your portfolio in gold mining shares. I think you uh, you looked at the allocation of thirty percent in the Barron's Gold Share Index and seventy percent in the S and P five hundred. I think that. Uh, Going back yeah. to 2015
0: and that? No, 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 going out to 1915.
2: Oh, no, yeah, I'm sorry, 1915, uh, all the way back to 1915. Uh, tell us about that, how that worked out. That worked yeah, out so very well, well, I guess. Well, and that, explain that's not, why. That, yeah,
0: yeah, it's a rebalanced portfolio. So it's not yeah. that you buy 30% of one of some oh. of the other and sat on it. It's that every year, annually, you reallocate it. I so, see. what it okay. does is it forces you to sell the S&P 500 while it's going up and to buy the Barron's Gold Mining Index while it's going down. Um, and, and I was actually surprised that it was as large as, as, as it is or has been historically. The, the data suggests, but the reason it works um, is, is that um, the, the, the way you really grow capital over time is if, if you compound it without the big wipeouts, right? I mean, the, right. the, the drawdown in 1929 was 90%. Well, if, if you just had some of your capital out of the market in that wipeout, um, uh, you know, you did really well. So it, it actually reduces your your returns sort of during the bubbles. But yes. then you don't have nearly the same drawdown everyone else does in the crashes, and so you retain more of your capital, and so you have more of it to invest in the next bubble, essentially. And, and you know what's interesting is it not only massively enhances your returns, but it also reduces your volatility. And and what's particularly extraordinary about it, I think, and, and the numbers are really you know, the math is weird sometimes, is that the Barron's Gold Mining Index by itself has been horrible. I mean, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's under, since 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 the last hundred years, it's underperformed. SM of hundred by something like eighty-seven percent. I mean, if you just had that, you know, it'd be a disaster, right? But it just so happens that it has this incredibly you know, negative beta aspect to it, where it it surges, it goes nuts mm-hmm. when the bigger markets, the broader markets, are crashing, and and that's mm-hmm. what preserves your capital. So it's not just you can't just buy it, you know, blindly. And again, you know, when you when you take a formula like this and you backdate it, I mean, yeah, you, know, you can design a formula to show you anything, but but I think it. I think it illustrates the point that that gold mining shares are something you really really want to have when um, when the music stops. And actually, I did some more detailed studies on this at one point, where I said, okay, well, can, you know, can you time these things a little better than just, just always keeping thirty percent every year in in gold stocks? Um, and, and the answer is yes. If you look at the Fed's balance sheet or or, or the or the bank system leverage, uh, you know, you don't want to own gold and gold mining shares when that's very low. Like in 1981, for example, or 1933, times like that. You do want to own a lot of gold instruments when it's very high, like 1929 or 1968 or or, or today. Um, so I, I would also note that, that that series is the Barron's Gold Mining Index, which um, are the bigger companies. And, and also, you know, I, again, you have to wonder whether these things continue in the future. Gold mining shares until the 70s paid huge amounts of dividends. Yeah. Um, yeah, and awesome. and they don't anymore. And and there are reasons for that, but um but what's what's what it's done is it's made them more volatile than they used to be. Um and, and the reason is very simple, which is that uh, as I alluded to earlier, these gold mining executives get compensated with call options. And the best way to increase the present value of your call options is a dial up volatility. And the way you do that is by taking a lot of debt and making lots of acquisitions. So they didn't use to do that as much as they do, as they do now. And that may change that dynamic. I, I suspect what that does is because they're more volatile, you probably want to own less of them now than you used to uh, because you get the same bang for your buck. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of upside, I mean, you know, if if you're all levered up and the goal goes up, you're, you know, you're a genius, right? It right. goes higher, so so you need relatively less of it in your portfolio to get the same protection. And, and, and as you know, my, my my thesis is these are the big companies that if you go to the really tiny junior companies, which are not as well managed and and, and which have less capital and generally assets that aren't as good. Um, you know they, they tend to underperform more than the big guys in, in the in the bubble which is pretty terrible if if, if that's right. all you're doing <laughs> but yeah. if it's just a small portion of your of your portfolio i mean th- those things really go crazy i mean there there isn't data for that stretching back very long but there there's circumstantial evidence i mean you get anecdotal stories mm-hmm. of little gold mining companies not just one or two but you know masses of them in the 30s and the 70s going up 30 40 50x from the bottom and, and exactly. it's because they go from being worth nothing or close to nothing, to something. And there are lots of gold mining stocks out there today that have a million, two million ounces of resource in a decent jurisdiction that are worth $10, $20 million you know, market know. And, and you Absolutely. can see that very easily going up 10, 20, 30x uh, you know, when gold breaches 2,000. Now, again, you got to be careful because if you pick one that has lousy management and they're going to print a billion shares, it doesn't yeah. matter. You're not going to get the right. benefit. So you've got to pick ones that, that they're not going to do that.
2: All right, Dan, with just a, a little under three minutes left, um, how close are we, do you think, to, to a reversal in this equity market? It's looking increasingly volatile, increasingly uh, suspect, I, I would say, this bull market. Do you think we're close to some sort of a turn here? You mentioned the Fed's balance sheet and, and when you want to be in gold and when you don't. You must think we, we've got to be getting somewhere close to. I think to,
0: we're so close. I mean, I, you know, I just read I was this morning that an Italian bank I bailed out. I mean, it, the, the, the banks in the U.S. Um, all fluttered all their risk to non-bank lenders. So it's not on their balance sheet. So all the regulators say, hey, it's, isn't it great? The banks are in much better shape. And they're much better shape because there's someone else who holds the risk, not them. But... They finance this stuff, and they, they lend money to these non-bank lenders that then make these loans. <laughs> it's just, it's one step removed, but the all the risk is still there, and all that means that when it blows up, the loss will be distributed more, perhaps, but you, the, you know, the losses will still happen. They'll still be distributed. In Europe, they've made almost no reforms, and so, uh, you look at I mean, there were some bank of the Ozarks, I think, in uh, Arkansas. But mm-hmm. that uh, you know, the stock crashed by half one day because it turned out their Miami condo loans were going bad. I said, "Well, what, what <laughs> is a tiny bank in Arkansas doing, giving loans in Miami?" And the, right. the answer is, "Well, they were the most aggressive players, and so that's people who who dealt with them." But how, how? I mean, there are plenty of banks in Miami. So you, you look, you looked around. You know, there, there, there was a big hedge fund in um, London that got gated. You look at Argentina and Turkey blowing up. You look at the Chinese banks; they've got massive problems. I mean, it, everywhere you look. To me, it's like 2007, early 2007, when none of the little failures in 2007 uh, were big enough to pull the whole system down, but they, they were symptomatic of really, really big problems under the surface. I think that's where we are, and you know, I don't think we're near the Lehman moment yet, but we're, we're near sort of the internal hedge funds blowing up that need that 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 uh, that are problematic. And usually, at this point in the cycle, the Fed is making at least soothing noises. Oh, we'll be yeah. there. Don't worry. Yeah. Instead. Still, we 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 got the hawks saying we're
2: we're going to raise rates until the yeah. market cracks. And, all right, Dan. So, anyway, okay, we're going to have to leave it go at that because we're out okay. of time. I, I I thank you very much for being with us. It's it's very enlightening, and I'm sure, uh, you know, with this tax law selling, there's a, a lot of good opportunities for people to pick up gold shares at, at just the right time, perhaps right now. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, Charles Hugh Smith will be with me uh, along with James Anderson. He's the executive chairman of Triumph Gold. And hopefully Michael Oliver will be back again next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
4: A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and. Kl- Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com.